unchange them. These furies could not be part and parcel of a working legal system in a society committed to the rule of law. You don't put wild dogs in a cage and come out with justice. That's Martha Nussbaum, a philosopher and legal scholar at the University of Chicago, whose world-renowned writing and scholarship brings into conversation ancient and contemporary philosophy, as well as drama, political thought, feminist thought, and ethics. Today we hear a lecture Nussbaum recently gave at the Hallenstein Center titled Anger and Revolutionary Justice, in which she addresses the promises as well as the perils of anger in civic life. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In a recent New Yorker profile, critic Rachel Aviv calls our speaker Martha Nussbaum the philosopher of feelings. It's true, Nussbaum, a world-famous philosopher and classicist, does spend a lot of time thinking and writing about feelings, about pain and shame as well as disgust, and about the fragility of goodness. She often relates such feelings with our conceptions of justice and ethics. Known not just as a rigorous philosopher, but also as a pleasing, lyrical, one might say even literary writer, Nussbaum manages to present her philosophical positions on these matters in a way that's accessible. Such accessibility is important, of course, if a philosopher is going to be read by ordinary people. Nussbaum can write for the lay reader. She also takes up topics that are directly relevant to our current political and cultural situation. Case in point, her lecture, which we will play for you now, on anger and revolutionary justice. In her talk, Nussbaum asks whether revolutionary anger is or can be an effective response to injustice. To do so, she examines the work of three major revolutionary leaders who aspired to non-anger, Mohandas Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Nelson Mandela. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Well, first I, I want to thank Scott and Morgan for inviting me here and making all these arrangements, and Rachel for giving such a wonderful example of the programs that go on here, which I've been really uh, moved and excited to learn about. I think this is an amazing experiment in civic and liberal education, and, and I'm just very honored to be here. So thank you all for coming, and um, look forward to exchanging ideas with all of you during the Q&A. I should say now that the first two or three questions will come from students. So students, be thinking of your questions uh, while I talk. Okay, I'm going to start, as, as I often do, with the Greeks and with the Greek tragedy, which I think sets the stage for our problem very nicely. At the end of Aeschylus's Oresteia, two transformations take place in the archaic world of the characters. One of these is famous, the other often neglected. In the famous transformation, the goddess Athena introduces legal institutions to terminate the seemingly endless cycle of blood vengeance, setting up a court of law with established procedures of evidence and reasoned argument, and a jury chosen by lot from all the citizens of Athens, she announces that blood guilt will from now on be settled by law rather than by the Furies, ancient goddesses of revenge. But 
And this is part and parcel of her famous transformation of the Athenian community. The Furies are not simply dismissed. Instead, Athena offers them a place of honor beneath the earth in recognition of their importance for the health of the city. Now, typically, this move of Athena's is understood to be a recognition that the legal system must incorporate the dark retributive passions and honor them. The suggestion is that the retributive passions themselves remain unaltered. They simply have a new house built around them. They agree to accept the constraints of law, but they retain an unchanged nature, dark and vindictive. That reading, however, ignores the second transformation, which is a transformation in the nature and demeanor of the Furies themselves. At the outset of the drama, the Furies are described as black and horrifying. They're said to be disgusting. Their eyes drip a hideous liquid. Apollo even says they're vomiting up clots of blood that they've ingested from their prey. Well, surely, he says, they belong in some barbarian tyranny, not in a democracy which is subject to the rule of law. Nor when they awaken do the Furies give the lie to these grim descriptions. As the ghost of the murdered Clytemnestra calls them, they don't even speak. They simply moan and whine, noises characteristic of animals. I mean, so in the Greek manuscripts, you have rigmos and oigmos. And then when they do begin to speak a little, their only words are, get him, get him, get him, get him, get him as close to a predator's hunting cry as the language allows. As Clytemnestra says, in your dream you pursue your prey, and you bark like a hunting dog, hot on the trail of blood. If the Furies are later given poetic speech as the genre demands, we're never to forget this initial characterization. What Aeschylus has done here is to depict unbridled resentment. It is obsessive, destructive, existing only to inflict pain and ill. As the distinguished 18th century philosopher Bishop Butler observed much later, no other principle or passion hath for its end the misery of our fellow creatures. Apollo's idea is that this rabid breed belongs somewhere else, in some society that doesn't try to moderate cruelty, but not in one that claims to be civilized. Unchanged, then, these furies could not be part and parcel of a working legal system in a society committed to the rule of law. You don't put wild dogs in a cage and come out with justice. But the furies don't make the transition to democracy unchanged. Until quite late in the drama, they are still their bestial selves, threatening to disgorge their venom on the land. Then, however, Athena persuades them to change themselves so as to join her enterprise. Lull to repose the bitter force of your black wave of anger, she tells them. But of course, that means a very profound transformation. Indeed, a virtual change of identity. So bound up are they with anger's obsessive force. She offers them incentives to join the city, a place of honor, reverence from the citizens, but the condition of this honor is that they become fully human, not totally taken up with revenge, but able to adopt a new range of sentiments, prominently including 
benevolent sentiments toward the entire city. They must also refrain from stirring up anger within it. The deal is that if they do good, and they have and they express kindly sentiments, they will receive good treatment and be honored. Perhaps most fundamentally transformative of all, they must learn to listen to the voice of persuasion. All of this, needless to say, is not just external containment, it's a profound inner reorientation. They accept Athena's offer and express themselves with gentle tempered intent, using in fact a word that Aristotle uses for the mild disposition that people should have in the area of anger. Each, they declare, should give generously to each in what they call a mindset of common love. Not surprisingly, they're transformed physically in analogous ways. They apparently stand up for the procession that concludes the drama. I mean, before that, they've been kind of crouching in this dog-like posture. And they receive crimson robes from the citizen women who are their escorts. So they become women, not beasts. Their very name is changed. They're now called the Eumenides, which means the kindly ones rather than the Furies. This second transformation is just as crucial as the first one. And indeed, it's crucial to the success of the first one. Aeschylus shows that political justice doesn't simply put a cage around resentment. It fundamentally transforms it from something barely human, obsessive, bloodthirsty, to something fully human, accepting of reasons, calm, deliberate, something that protects human life rather than threatening it. The indignation that inhabits just institutions is not really an angry sentiment, it's a measured judgment in defense of life. The Furies are still needed because this is an imperfect world and there will always be crimes to be dealt with, but they are not wanted or needed in their original shape and form. Indeed, they have become instruments of human well-being. The city is liberated from the scourge of vindictive anger, which produced civil war and premature death. In the place of anger, the city gets forward-looking justice. It's no accident that the major Greek and Roman philosophers, from Socrates to Seneca, were strong opponents of retributivism in the criminal law and defenders of a welfare-based deterrent conception of punishment. Well, so you now got my normative idea in a nutshell, but it's radical and evokes strong protest. For anger, with all its ugliness, is a popular emotion. Many people think it's impossible to care about justice without anger at injustice, and that anger should therefore be encouraged as part of the transformative process. Many people also believe that it's impossible for individuals to stand up for their own self-respect without anger, that someone who reacts to wrongs and insults without anger is spineless and downtrodden. Women, in particular, have often been urged to tap into our alleged hidden anger and to see this search for suppressed anger as part of a personal journey to self-respect. And then people also believe that getting angry when someone else does something wrong to you is essential to taking that other person seriously. So if you wrong me and I don't get angry at you, I'm treating you condescendingly 
like a child or a person of diminished capacity. Nor are these ideas confined to the sphere of personal relations. The most popular position in the sphere of criminal justice today is retributivism. That is the view that the criminal law ought to punish aggressors in a manner that embodies the spirit of justified anger. And it's also very widely believed that successful challenges against great injustice need the spirit of anger to make progress. So anger's at the heart of revolutionary transformation. Still, we may persist in our skepticism, thinking about the fact that recent years have seen three noble and successful freedom movements, all conducted in a spirit of non-anger. That is, the movements of Mohandas Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and Nelson Mandela. Surely, people who stood up for their own dignity and that of others, and who did not acquiesce in injustice. I'm now going to argue that a close philosophical analysis of the emotion of anger can help us to support these philosophies of non-anger, showing why anger is fatally flawed from a normative viewpoint, sometimes incoherent and in other cases based on bad values, but in both of those cases, it's of dubious value in life and in the law. So I'll first present the general view, and then I'll show why it's relevant to thinking about revolutionary justice. So let me begin with Aristotle's definition of anger, because it's really at the start of the whole Western philosophical tradition, and most of the other definitions that we get in that tradition are just copies, where there's one exception that I'll get to in a minute. Um, but also, I, although I don't know much about all the other non-Western traditions. I do know something about the Indian tradition, and definitions of anger in the Indian tradition are also very similar to this one. Okay, so Aristotle says, anger is a painful emotion that responds to a significant damage to something or someone that one cares deeply about, and a damage that the angry person believes to have been wrongfully inflicted. He adds that although the anger itself is painful, it also contains within itself a pleasant hope for payback or retribution. So we have significant damage pertaining <clears throat> to one's own values or the things one cares most about and wrongfulness. I think those two elements are pretty uncontroversial and they've seemed true to most people who think about anger. And they have also been validated by empirical psychologists who've studied anger recently. But more controversial is the idea that the angry person wants some kind of retribution, and that this is a conceptual part of what anger itself is. Now, all the Western philosophers who talk about anger do include this wish as a conceptual element in anger. But we need to pause, because it really isn't obvious. Now, we should understand that the wish for retribution can be a very subtle wish. The angry person doesn't need to want to go out and take revenge herself. She may simply want the law to punish the aggressor, or even some type of divine justice, or even more subtly, she may simply wish that the wrongdoer's life will go very badly in the future, hoping, for example, that that second marriage of your betraying spouse is a dismal failure. 
Well, I think if we understand the wish in that broad way, Aristotle's right. Our anger does contain a kind of strike back tendency, and that is what differentiates it from compassionate grieving. And uh, the contemporary empirical psychologists who study anger empirically do agree with Aristotle in seeing this double movement in it from pain inflicted to hope for some sort of payback. But an example will help. Suppose a wrongdoer has murdered Angela's child. She, of course, feels enormous grief and loss. But suppose she's angry at the murderer, as of course she's likely to be. What's that emotion all about? It isn't just sadness at the loss, since its focus is on the wrongfulness of the act. But still, is it just sadness that a wrongful act had occurred and a wish that it had not occurred? If that's all Angela feels, then I, I think we still wouldn't call her emotion anger. It would be a special type of grief. But then, what is it that makes her emotion anger? I think it is the wish for some type of retribution, however subtle. Now, I'm going to come back to this, and I later will introduce one major exception. But first, one more thing that Aristotle says seems not quite right. He says that anger is not a response to any kind of wrongful act, but only to a specific type that he calls a down-ranking. Now, I think that's not true all the time. I can certainly get wrong, angry at wrongs done to other people without thinking of them as down-rankings of me. I can even get angry at violations of principles that I care about. But still, let's hold on to Aristotle's idea because it does cover surprisingly many cases of anger, as empirical research discovers. And it can help to make sense of some puzzling things that we'll get to shortly. Now we're ready to begin seeing what's normatively problematic about anger. The central issue is this. The payback idea does not make sense. Ideas of cosmic balance are extremely widespread and archaic, and almost all of us have them at some level. When wrong is done, we somehow think the universe will be off kilter unless there's a proportional rectification on the other side. The earliest piece of written Western philosophy that we have, a fragment of the 6th century BCE philosopher Anaximander, says that human justice is like the cycle of the seasons. The hot and the cold pay penalty to one another, each by predominating for a while and then by getting squeezed out in their turn maybe not quickly enough in the Midwestern spring. Um, but this is something that people believe, whether they're through their experience of the seasons or for some other reason. But it just doesn't make sense in the world of human action. Whatever the wrong is that was done, a murder, a rape, inflicting pain on the wrongdoer does not in and of itself restore the thing that was lost. As Aeschylus says, when a man's blood is spilt upon the ground, who can call it back again? We think about payback all the time, and it's very human to think the proportionality between punishment and offense somehow makes good the offense. Only it doesn't. Let's say my friend has been raped. I urgently want the offender to be arrested, convicted, and punished. But really, 
what good will that do? Looking to the future, I may want many things to restore my friend's life, to prevent and deter future rapes, but harsh treatment of this particular wrongdoer might or might not achieve the latter goal. It's an empirical question, as Plato, rejecting Anaximander's archaic idea of punishment, already saw. And usually people don't treat it as an empirical matter. They're in the grip of an idea of cosmic balance that makes them think blood for blood, pain for pain is the way it must go. The payback idea is deeply human, but fatally flawed as a way of making sense of the world. But now we can return to Aristotle's idea of downranking. For there is one, and I think only one, situation in which the payback idea does make perfect sense. That is, when I see the wrong as entirely and only a downranking. That is entirely and only about relative status. If the problem is not the murder or the rape itself, but the way it has affected my relative rank in the social hierarchy, then I really can achieve what I want by humiliating the wrongdoer. By pushing that person relatively lower, I automatically do push myself up relatively higher. And since we're assuming that relative status is the only thing I care about, I don't need to worry that the real well-being problems caused by the crime have not been solved. In short, a wrong person who is angry, seeking to strike back, soon arrives, I claim, at a fork in the road. Three paths lie open before her. Number one, she can go down what I call the path of status, seeing the offense as entirely and only about her and her relative rank. Or number two, she can choose the road of payback and imagine that the offender's suffering will somehow restore the thing that was lost, a thought that I say does not make sense. Or if she is rational, after exploring and rejecting these two flawed roads, she will notice that a third path is open before her, which is the best of all. She can focus on doing whatever would make sense in the situation and be really helpful going forward. Now, this may very well include the punishment of the aggressor, but in a spirit that is forward-looking rather than merely retaliatory. But first, what actually is wrong with the status path? Many societies do encourage people to think of all injuries as essentially about them and their relative rank. Life involves perpetual status anxiety. More or less everything that happens to one either raises one's rank or lowers it. Aristotle's society, as he describes it, was to a large extent like this. And he was very critical of that tendency on the grounds that the obsessive focus on status and honor impedes the pursuit of intrinsic goods. The error involved in the status path is not silly or easily dismissed, nor should we think that the preoccupation with honor and status is found only in other societies, those that we like to call honor cultures when we locate on the map of the world someplace way far away from the US, like in the Middle East someplace. No, this preoccupation is ubiquitous in our own country, uh, as the brilliant musical Hamilton, I think, sees very clearly. That was a society 
not unlike our own, I think, in which offenses to honor and relative status made people fight duels all the time and so on. Still, the tendency to see everything that happens as about oneself and one's own relative rank seems and I think is very narcissistic and ill-suited to a society in which reciprocity and justice are important values. And I think that's what Miranda really sees absolutely correctly, that Hamilton wants much more, but Burr is the one who's just obsessed with the relative status, and that is the, the driving contrast in the drama. So even in the case where one is oneself a victim of a crime, it seems off to view murder as bad because somebody is being downranked rather than because life is lost and pain is inflicted. If these crimes were just downrankings, then they could be rectified by the humiliation of the offender. And I think many people do believe something like that. But isn't this thought a red herring diverting us from the reality of death and the pain of survivors? Pain and trauma need to be constructively addressed by attention to those people. So to put my radical claim succinctly, when anger makes sense, namely it's focused on pain and trauma and loss, its retaliatory tendencies tendency is normatively problematic because it just um, doesn't restore the thing that you want to restore. When it's normatively more on target, that is it's, uh, you know, get you, you get what you want, it's because you focus on status and that's much too narrow. And so you might get what you want, but the, what you have, have decided to want is defective. So in a rational person, anger, realizing that, soon turns to the future and transforms itself. So from now on, I'm going to call this healthy segue into forward-looking thoughts and accordingly from anger into compassionate hope, the transition with a capital T. So that's kind of a technical term in my manuscript and so that's, that's how I'll use it going forward. But to clarify further what I mean by the transition, let me consider a case in which it takes a political form, thus introducing our topic of transitional justice. I want to look carefully at just one example, the sequence of emotions in Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Now, King begins with what looks very much like an Aristotelian summons to anger. He points to the wrongful injuries of racism, which have failed to fulfill the nation's implicit promises of equality. 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, quote, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. The next move King makes is highly significant. For instead of demonizing white Americans or portraying their behavior in terms apt to elicit retaliatory rage, he calmly compares them to people who have defaulted on a financial obligation. Quote, America has given the Negro people a bad check a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. So here, I think, is where what I call the transition begins because it makes us think ahead in non-retributive ways. The essential question is now not how whites can be brought low, but rather 
How can this debt be paid at last? And in the financial metaphor, the thought of killing the debtor is not likely to be central. The transition now gets underway in earnest as King focuses on a future in which all may join together in pursuing justice and honoring obligations. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity in this nation. So no mention again of torment or payback, only determination to ensure the vindication of civil rights at last. King reminds his audience that the moment is urgent and that there's a danger of rage spilling over, but he repudiates that behavior in advance. Quote, in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force, which was a term he appropriated from Gandhi. So pedigree is important in seeing what he, what he means. So the payback is reconceived as the vindication of civil rights, a process that must unite black and white in a quest for freedom and justice. Everyone will benefit, as many white people already recognize, says King, their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. King next repudiates a despair that could lead to the abandonment of effort. And it's at this point that the most famous part of the speech, the I have a dream part, takes flight. And of course, this dream is not one of torment or retributive punishment. It's not from the book of Revelation, but it's from the book of Isaiah. It's a prophetic dream of equality, liberty, and brotherhood. In pointed terms, King invites the African-American members of his audience to imagine brotherhood even with their former tormentors. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of aggression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Now, there seems to be sort of anger at first in the speech, or at least it's on the verge of anger, and the anger summons up a, a vision of some sort of rectification which could easily take a retributive form. But King gets busy right away reshaping retributivism into work and hope. For how sanely and really could injustice be made good by retributive payback? The oppressor's pain and lowering do not make the afflicted free. Only an intelligent 
an imaginative effort toward justice can do that. So that's what I mean by the transition, a movement from anger with all its baggage to forward-looking, constructive thought and work. Now, King favored nonviolence, although he said often that it was um, not in every instance that uh, he was not a pacifist. He changed uh, his view on that later. But at this time, he was not a pacifist. Uh, but uh, he favored nonviolence in this context. So have many intelligent leaders. Sometimes, however, that strategy fails. Nelson Mandela records the gradual decision of the ANC under his leadership that violent strategies would have to be pursued. But while urging ANC members to commit violent acts in certain strategic and limited ways, he never failed to direct them away from payback and retributivism and to point forward to a future of cooperation. And we'll see examples of that later. So it's at this point that I want to introduce a major exception to my thesis that anger always involves conceptually a thought of retribution. Now, I think that's the standard case where one gets angry first, thinking about some type of payback, and then in a cooler moment, one might focus instead on the transition. But there are at least some cases in which one is there already. That is, the entire content of one's emotion is. How outrageous that is, something should be done about that. So in other words, it's facing forward. And so let's call that emotion transition anger, because it is anger or borderline anger, but it's already facing the future and therefore heading down the third fork in Angela's road. Transition anger does not focus on status, nor does it even briefly want the suffering of the offender as a type of payback for the injury. It focuses on social welfare from the start, saying something should be done about that. It commits itself to a search for strategies, but it remains an open question whether and how the suffering of the offender would be among the most appealing. This sort of borderline anger, I think you can, you can think of it by thinking that it's very often felt by parents toward their young children. That is, the child does something that's really outrageous, and the parent is outraged. But the parent doesn't really just think about payback. The parent really wants to shape the child's future and wants to do something about that and wants good to ensue for the child. What, if any, good can we say about the, the other kind, the, what I would call garden variety anger? I think anger has a very limited but real utility, which derives very likely from its evolutionary role as a fight or flight mechanism. I think it can play three roles. First, anger can be a useful wake-up call to oneself, namely that something is badly wrong in my life. Still, that signal is not all that accurate given anger's strong connection to status. I mean, if I feel myself being angry, it might just be because I've been dissed, and that wouldn't necessarily show you anything real interesting. Um, second, and I think this is quite important, anger can sometimes motivate real people to address real problems. Again, it might not end up being the most reliable motivation. King did 
think that it was important in bringing people to his movement. But then he said he used the highly formal and limited structure of the nonviolent protest march to channel, as he put it, real anger into something that would actually prove governable and useful. And then third, anger can be a useful deterrent. That is, people may refrain from aggressing against someone if they think that a, an angry explosion is likely to be the result. Well, that I think is, is true. We all know people like that, but they may simply achieve isolation and not the good treatment that they desire. There's something a little bit wrong looking for good treatment by being explosive and scary. And indeed, that is likely to lead not to less aggression, but maybe just to a more devious type of aggression. In any case, we can retain these three limited instrumental roles for anger while insisting that its payback fantasy is profoundly misleading and that to the extent that it makes sense, as it does in the case of relative status, it does so against the background of diseased narcissistic values. Well, what's the upshot for law and society? I should say that in, in my book, I talk first about intimate personal relationships, then about what I call the middle realm, that is sort of daily interactions with people uh, in, in just everywhere who, whom we don't know particularly intimately. But anyway, here we, we get to politics. So as far as everyday political justice goes, I think the upshot is precisely what Jeremy Bentham and Plato before him thought, namely that constructive forward-looking thought about how to deal with the whole social problem of crime is what should interest us, not the empty fantasy of payback. Punishment, if we end up using it, ought to compete for our attention with other strategies that society can use before the crime takes place to deter and prevent crime. As Bentham emphasized, preventing wrongful acts is a very complicated task, and we need to consider it in the broadest possible way, asking how nutrition, social welfare, education, employment opportunities, and a variety of constructive policies may contribute. He argued that the focus on punishment ex post is actually quite inefficient if what one really wants is less crime. Often, he said, the same result can be attained, quote, as effectually at a cheaper rate by instruction, for instance, as well as by terror, by informing the understanding, as well as by exercising an immediate influence on the will. I think we should agree with Bentham that the failure of societies, and certainly ours first among all, to consider punishment in the context of that kind of larger inquiry is a grotesque failure. It's as if parents stop thinking about education, nutrition, inspiration, love, to focus single-mindedly on harsh treatment of the bad behavior that would certainly follow such neglect. Now, parents mostly don't think that way because they love their children and they think of the child's well-being as part of the parent's own. Unfortunately, in our country, citizens don't always love their fellow citizens or think of their well-being as part of the dominant group's own. 
And that, I fear, is why our society in particular has been willing to tolerate a pile on the misery strategy as if it really made sense. Well, there's much more to be said about that, but no time here. So now I want to turn to revolutionary justice, or really to turn back to it, since with King we're there already. Philosophers and non-philosophers alike have seen anger as appropriate in situations of great oppression and is linked to the vindication of self-respect. It is then not surprising that non-anger in such situations should have struck many onlookers as strange, unmanly, even revolting. Consider the reaction of Webb Miller, the UPI correspondent who reported the nonviolent protest action organized by Mohandas Gandhi at the Darasan Assault Works in 1930. That's the part in Attenborough's movie. Uh, so Webb Miller is the one that Martin Sheen plays, and so that march was the one where he was telegraphing in to UPI as the men got beaten down. So Miller observed scores of marchers getting beaten down by the police four by four all day long, and reacted with perplexity, as he records in a later memoir. Not one of the marchers even raised an arm to fend off the blows. They went down like ten pins. From where I stood, I heard the sickening whacks of the clubs on unprotected skulls. At times, the spectacle of unresisting men being methodically bashed into a bloody pulp sickened me so much that I had to turn away. The Western mind finds it difficult to grasp the idea of non-resistance. I felt an indefinable sense of helpless rage and loathing, almost as much against the men who were submitting unresistingly to being beaten as against the police wielding the clubs. And this despite the fact that when I came to India, I sympathized with the Gandhi cause. Well, but the marchers were not simply acquiescing. Miller could certainly see that. Their march was a demand and a protest. They continued to march, and they chanted the slogan, Long Live the Revolution. And yet, there is, as Miller says, something in the mind. And I'm afraid not only the Western mind, because uh, in 1948, Gandhi was shot at point-blank range by a Hindu right-wing fanatic and killed. And at the sentencing hearing, Nathuram Godse said that the reason he was killing him was the way that he had emasculated the Hindus and taken them away from the example of manly retribution that the Indian epics uh, offered, or so he, so he said. So, uh, okay, so there's something in the, in the manly mind, we might say, that resists accepting this way of reacting to brutal behavior. What do Gandhi and King have to say to people who think that anger is the right response to oppressive behavior and the only response consistent with self-respect? First, they point out that the stance they recommend is anything but passive. Now, Gandhi, early on, did not know English very much at all, and he did briefly authorize the words passive resistance as an English translation of his Gujarati original, caused great confusion. But by 1910, he had already understood that that was a bad translation and he rejected it. So um, both he and King continually insist that what they recommend is a state of mind that is highly active, 
even, as King puts it, dynamically aggressive in that it involves resistance to unjust conditions and protest against them. But when I say we should not resent, I do not say that we should acquiesce, says Gandhi. For King, similarly, I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Both men hold explicitly, as I do, that anger is inherently wedded to a payback mentality. Gandhi says resenting means wishing some harm to the opponent, if only through divine agency. And King similarly speaks about a strike back mentality. So that's what they want to get rid of, and we'll soon see with what they will replace it. Moreover, the new attitude is not just internally active, it also issues in concrete actions with one's body, actions that require considerable courage. King calls this direct action, action in which after what he calls self-purification, that is getting rid of the payback wish, one's own body is used to make the case. This action is a forceful, uncompromising demand for freedom. The protester acts by marching, by breaking an unjust law, in a deliberate demand for justice, by refusing to cooperate with unjust authority. The goal, in King's case, it is to force negotiation and to move toward legal and social change. For Gandhi, it's nothing less than to get the British out of India, to overthrow a wrongful government. The idea of acquiescence and brutality is presumably what revolted Webb Miller, but he just misunderstood. There's no acquiescence, but a courageous struggle for a radical end. And what is the new attitude with which they propose to, which, which they propose in order to replace anger? King, as I've said, does allow some scope for real anger initially, holding that people often would be too depressed to do anything if they didn't first get angry and then come to his movement. But then you have to channel those emotions that in, into a useful way. So you, even when there's real anger at first, it has to otherwise uh, lead to soon to a focus on the future with hope and with faith in the possibility of justice. Meanwhile, anger toward opponents must be transformed into a mental attitude that carefully separates the deed from the doer, condemning and repudiating the bad deed but never imputing unalterable evil to people. Deeds may be denounced. People always deserve respect and even understanding. After all, the ultimate goal, says King, is to create a world where men and women can live together. As simple as that, right? And this goal needs the participation of everyone. Above all, then, one should not wish to humiliate the opponent in any way or wish them ill, but instead should seek to win their friendship and cooperation. Gandhi remarks that early in his uh, career, when he was in England, he already felt it was very inappropriate to sing the second stanza in God Save the Queen, which asks God, scatter her enemies and make them fall, confound their politics, frustrate their knavish tricks. He says, well, 
Why should we assume that these opponents are knaves? Surely the believer in non-anger should not encourage that way of thinking. The opponent is a person who has made a very bad mistake, but we hope that he can be won over by friendship and generosity. But since I think in, in some ways an even richer life example of these attitudes is uh, because it involves uh, such a struggle with his own anger and such a victorious struggle um, is, is that, uh, let, let me conclude by talking about Nelson Mandela. So I've argued that anger leads down two paths, uh, each of which has an unattractive error built into it. Either anger's wish for ill to befall the wrongdoer is pointless because payback does no good for the important elements of human well-being that have been damaged, or it remains focused on relative status, in which case it may possibly succeed in its aim, relative lowering, but the aim itself is singularly unworthy. I'm now going to try to show you that Mandela himself instinctively comes to this same conclusion. He was much less theoretical than the other two, so I think it's all the more interesting how he arrives at this, in a way informed by his study of Gandhi, but much more shaped by his own life experience and his very long period of self-examination during his 27 years in prison, a time that he says was extremely productive in meditating about anger. Now, it's recently come to light that Ahmad Kathrada, the Indian prisoner who died last week, who was with Mandela in Robben Island, smuggled into the prison a text of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. So that was another shaping force. And we, we know that later Mandela referred a lot to Marcus, but now we know that he read Marcus in prison. So what did Marcus realize, um, what did Mandela realize in those long hours of what he later calls Conversations with Myself, which he gives as the title of a book of interviews and letters in which he deliberately compares his experience to Marcus's meditations. Well, first he recognizes, he says, that obsession with status is ubiquitous but unworthy, and so he refuses to go down that road. Although he uses his understanding of that tendency to help him relate to others. As for the wish for payback, he says that he understands that very, very well and felt it deeply in his own life. But he recognized, he tells us, that payback simply doesn't get you anywhere. Maybe at some level there's a choice between anger and non-anger in the sense that wrongdoing might understandably and humanly lead to either reaction. But if we ponder the sheer futility of the payback wish, and if we actually want good for ourselves and for others, we quickly discover that non-anger and a generous disposition are far more useful. Above all, says Mandela, they are much more useful for the person who's the fiduciary of a nation. To put it in a nutshell, a responsible leader has to be a pragmatist, and anger is just incompatible with forward-looking pragmatism. It simply gets in the way. A good leader must move to what I've called the transition as rapidly as possible, and perhaps for much of his life just stay there. A good summary of Mandela's approach can be found in a little parable that he told his interviewer Richard Stengel as one that he had often used with his followers. So here it is. 
I told the incident of an argument between the sun and the wind, that the sun said, I'm stronger than you are. And the wind says, no, I'm stronger than you are. And they decided, therefore, to test their strength with a traveler who was wearing a blanket. And they agreed that the one who would succeed in getting the traveler to get rid of the blanket would be the stronger. So the wind started. It started blowing, and the harder it blew, the tighter the traveler pulled the blanket around his body. And the wind blew and blew, but it could not get him to discard the blanket. And as I say, the harder the wind blew, the tighter the visitor tried to hold the blanket around his body. And the wind eventually gave up. Then the sun started with its rays, very mild, as they increased in strength, and as they increased, the traveler felt that the blanket was unnecessary because the blanket is for warmth. And so he decided to relax it, to loosen it, but the rays of the sun became stronger and stronger, and eventually he threw it away. So by a gentle method, it was possible to get the traveler to discard his blanket, and this is the parable that through peace, you will be able to convert, you see, the most determined people. And that is the method we must follow. Significantly, Mandela frames the whole exercise in forward-looking pragmatic terms as that of getting the other person to do what you want. He then shows that this task is much more feasible if you can get the other party to work with you rather than defending against you. Progress is impeded by the other party's defensiveness and anxiety. Anger, consequently, does nothing to move matters forward. It just increases the other party's anxiety and self-defensiveness. A gentle approach, by contrast, can gradually weaken defenses until the whole idea of self-defense is given up. Mandela, of course, was not naive, and he was not so ideological either as to refuse reality. Thus, we would never, I think, find him proposing, as I'm afraid Gandhi did, to drop armed resistance to Hitler and to try converting Hitler by charm. His parable is offered in a particular context, that of the ending of a sometimes strategically violent liberation struggle with people on the other side many of whom are genuine patriots, wanting the future good of the nation. He insisted from the start that nonviolence should be used only strategically. Still, behind the strategic resort to violence was always a view of people that was transitional, focused not on payback, but on the creation of a shared future in the wake of outrageous and horrible deeds. Two famous examples show Mandela checking the demands of his ANC comrades for payback in the service of reconciliation. The first is the example of the national rugby team, known through the excellent movie Invictus, where Morgan Freeman plays Mandela, and also based on John Carlin's book of the same name. So the story is that the ANC had voted to decertify the national rugby team as an official team of the nation in an attempt to punish the racist white rugby community because it had been pretty exclusively white sport and the fans really were quite racist. Mandela understood the strategic importance of sports for national reconciliation 
And so he set out to form a friendship with the team's captain and the other players, in the process getting them to offer rugby clinics in the townships so that it quickly took off and became a far less all-white sport. The celebration of the World Cup victory was the culmination of this long strategic campaign. And when, even before the match began, so they had no way of knowing whether they were really going to beat New Zealand or not, when the huge crowd in the stadium called out, Mandela, 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 white and black together, the future of the nation was a great large step further on. The second and very similar example was that of the national anthem. The ANC had voted to substitute their freedom hymn and Cosi Sikileli Africa for the old Afrikaans national anthem, Distem. Mandela saw, I mean, once again, understanding the depth uh, of music in people's sense of identity, he saw this would impede a future of reconciliation. So he proposed and got his party to accept the version that is now sung, in which the two anthems are put together. So first, Nkosi sung in four different African languages, then second stanza, de stem in Afrikaans, which Mandela had learned, by the way, very fluently. And then a final stanza in English, which is sort of, you could say, in higher education in South Africa, the language in which the two groups come together. In both of these cases, payback was very natural and very easy. Mandela preferred a more devious and difficult course. Although the ANC thought initially that their self-respect required payback, they later saw that a generous spirit was self-respecting and was an awful lot better for the nation. Let me end this talk with just one more Mandela story, which shows him renouncing both the status error and the payback error. Mandela's talking here about an interaction with a white Afrikaner warder or jailer who watched him while he was in the transitional prison, Victor Vorster, prior to his official release. So Mandela was in three different prisons, first for over 20 years, he was in this Robben Island where the conditions were really terrible. Then, as it was pretty clear that eventually he would be released, he was transferred to the mainland to a prison called Palsmore where the conditions were much better. But then, after the deal was all worked out, he was about to be released, he was going to be president of the nation in about a month, he's still in prison and he's transferred to this country club jail which is called Victor Vorster, where he has a personal valet and cook. So that is the person we're talking about. So he's talking about an interaction with this person. And the question was, how would the dishes get done? A question in many households all over the world. And he says, I took it upon myself to break the tension and a possible resentment on his part that he has to serve a prisoner by cooking and then washing the dishes. And I offered to wash the dishes, and he refused. He said, it's his work. I said, no, we must share it. Although he insisted and he was genuine, I forced him, literally forced him, to allow me to do the dishes. And we established a very good relationship. A really nice chap, Warder Spart, a very good friend of mine. Now, it would have been so easy to see this as a case of status inversion. The proud Afrikaner is getting a humiliation by doing dishes for the once despised ANC leader. 
It would also have been so easy to see it in terms of payback. The warder is getting paid because of his complicity in racial oppression. Significantly, Mandela doesn't go down either of these doomed paths, even briefly. He asks only, how shall I produce cooperation and friendship? It was this remarkable capacity for generosity and reciprocity that was Mandela's genius, the fruit, he tells us, of years of critical self-examination on Robben Island. So it's a difficult goal. But it's that goal that I am recommending for both individuals and institutions. Anger is a prominent part of most people's lives. I've argued that it lacks the virtues often claimed for it and has both normative and practical problems of its own. I hesitate to conclude with a slogan that surely betrays my age, but it really does seem to be time to give peace a chance. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, first of all, for coming all the way to Grand Rapids to talk to us about something that's so relevant to us right now. But um, certainly in giving presentations like this and in publishing works like Your Anger and Forgiveness, you've taken on a role of Athena to some extent <laughs> in inspiring a transformation in the nature and demeanor yeah. of the, the fury and the um, retributivism in our society today. But how can we continue to promote a mindset of common love in the profound inner re reorientation of the anger that is so prevalent in our society, specifically now, to the transition anger that you describe? Yeah, um, well, yes. I mean, of course, in uh, as Scott said, a little less than a month, I'm going to be talking in Washington. Uh, um, not exactly the same topic, but a very closely related topic. And, and, and of course, at a time when the I'm speaking for the National Endowment for the Humanities at a time when the humanities are about to be gutted in the national budget, or we, we hope they might survive. I think there are just many ways of answering your question, and certainly there are ways of being a parent that are crucial to bringing up children who can deal with threats and injuries in a way that furthers human well-being rather than just inflicting more pain. Uh, there are all kinds of different things one can do. One can work with groups who are working in the city. I mean, in my city, there are church groups. There are all kinds of groups in which people are working for a spirit of cooperation and peace. But the one that I belong to, which I think is not, not for nothing in this, is, is philosophy. Because I actually think that the traditional liberal arts education, which includes both philosophy and literature and the arts, is a very important part of training this spirit, of the spirit of Athena, if you will, in, in our society. Because, I mean, you think about philosophy, and who does Socrates question? He questions all these politicians who think that when they make a bold, aggressive statement, that's the end of the matter. And they're not vulnerable, they don't want to listen. But Socrates exemplifies a different attitude toward other people. He's open, he's going to listen to what anyone has to say, so long as they say what they actually think. And he promotes a spirit of genuine engagement. 
in which, let's hope, common ground, as this wonderful initiative you have here uh, explores, uh, would ultimately be found. And I think philosophy is such a powerful antidote to the politics of aggression and just trying to you know, get your will imposed on other people, so that if we teach it, uh, hopefully at all levels, but uh, since we're dealing with higher education, I think as a, a central part of the undergraduate curriculum and along with works of literature that strengthen the muscles of our imagination, making it possible for us to see where different people are coming from, including the very ones who make us most angry, whoever those would be. Because I think you have to understand where the other people are coming from and nourish this spirit of give and take through both philosophy and literature, I think that's absolutely crucial. Now, I'm gonna say that at the end of my lecture and you know, hope that that would in influence a couple of politicians in the audience to vote to fund the endowment. But even if they don't, we still have our wonderful institutions of higher education who should, I hope, remain profoundly committed to the liberal arts mission as a core part of what, what we're doing when we give people a higher education. So thanks. Hi, my name's Jonas. Um, I don't go to GVSU, I go to Calvin. Um, oh, hi. And I find your, this concept interesting. I'm a philosophy major, so I'm intrigued by the whole, this, the whole talk, and I haven't got to my hands on the book, unfortunately. Um, I'm just curious what we do then with the black radical tradition, Malcolm X, the radical ends of the ANC, people like Simone de Beauvoir in Ethics of Ambiguity where she says sometimes killing the brown shirt, AKA a young Nazi might be needed. Or even someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a pacifist and then after pretty serious encounters and especially in Harlem when he came to the US, came to terms with the fact that he can, he had to go back to his native Germany and that simple non, like a, I don't want to say simple, that nonviolence yeah. was not the need, the key. So I'm curious what you do with that right. tradition. Well, okay, so first thing, I think it's important to separate nonviolence and non-anger. As I said, Mandela decided to use violence strategically and in a limited way, and so too do many leaders who are not retributive people. Uh, I think myself, I'm not a pacifist. I think there are just wars. And if you think, for example, about the great speech Winston Churchill gave where he asked people to endure blood, toil, tears, and sweat, that's a speech that says we have something very precious for which we must be willing to fight, and that does mean engaging in violence, but there's not a drop of retributivism in that speech. He doesn't say the whole problem is solved by making Germany grovel in the dust. And I actually think in wars that are just, which I think the Second World War is paradigmatically so, um, sometimes the, the purity of the, the limited uh, use of violence gets corrupted by retributive desires. And then, as in, I think, the bombing of Dresden is an example where bad policy choices were made in a spirit of retributivism. So I think it's always a dangerous thing to get into violence because you never know whether you're really going to be able to control it. But, uh, but my position is certainly not to repudiate all violence. I, I think 
you have to try other things first, and you, just as King says, you don't even break the law until you've tried everything else first. You certainly don't engage in violence until you've tried nonviolence first. And um, King never went there, not because he couldn't have philosophically justified it, but for a more strategic reason, I think, that the African-American man was being viewed as a wild animal, a predator, and so to behave with quiet dignity and calm was essential to winning respect. But there was no in-principle reason why you wouldn't strike back in self-defense. So I think that's right. I think Gandhi, who totally repudiated violence, was, was wrong about that. And so I, I just, uh, I think that's part of the answer. But now that's not the whole, of course, of what those people are saying. What Malcolm X is saying, and I think it's the very same thing that that Hindu right-wing assassin, Naturam Godse, said, is there's something glorious and manly about anger itself. Uh, Malcolm X says that King, he compares King to some lovely strong coffee and then you start pouring milk into it and it gets cold and it gets white and at the end, it's not like coffee at all anymore. And uh, Godse says something very similar about what Gandhi did to the heroes of the epics. But you know, I think that's a mistake. I think that King's stance is strong and not weak. I think it's a rather childish attitude that thinks the only way you can show that you're strong is to hit somebody, right? Uh, you, you, know, you show you're strong by asserting your dignity and remaining determined and demanding justice in the face of great obstacles. And there are some movements that have really never gotten mired in that the, the, the kind of uh, mindset that you're talking about. And I think all for the better. If you think about the women's movement, for the most part, women have made their demands with strength, with dignity, and with absolute firmness, uh, and have gathered together from all corners of the world to make their demands. But they didn't think that it would be useful to go out on a killing spree, uh, and they, they didn't do that. And when you think about the gay and lesbian movement response to the Orlando massacre, I think, again, that was a very powerful and strong response, because they said, basically, we're going to stand here and show you that love is better than hate. Similarly, the people in the church in South Carolina after the Dylan Roof murders uh, made a demonstration of love. And I think that's strong and that's mature. I think there is something rather childish. Uh, it probably goes back to the childhood of a lot of males in America because we know from psychological studies that little boys are encouraged to act out in their anger as, as though there's something cute about that and something manly about that. But you know, the truth is it isn't. It's actually selfish and immature. That's basically what I would say. Yeah. Hello, I'm Audrey, and thank you again for such a wonderful talk and a wonderful book as well. I enjoyed it so much. And I was curious, because you talk a lot about uh, a few ancient philosophers, but you don't touch much on stoicism. Uh, but Seneca, of course, had quite a bit to say about anger in yeah. the era. And I was curious, because he would say that not only is anger bad for the community and bad for society, but it is detrimental to oneself. Right. And if we have any place in our society, and maybe considering how 
hurtful anger can be to one's own virtue. I mean, we're all very concerned about our virtue at this point, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and if we yes. could use maybe that approach in addressing one's anger for self and then move it towards society and community, especially in the political scheme. Yeah, the thank you. That's a great question. I do. Um, I, the reason I don't want to base my view on the Stoics is that the Stoics urge a very considerable detachment from all the emotions, not just anger, but also love, grief, and fear. Now, it turns out that Gandhi had the same view. Richard Sarabji's wonderful book, Gandhi and the Stoics, I really recommend. It shows uh, text by text that Gandhi, not that he read them, but he I just happened to agree. But you know, I don't agree. I, I do think that you know, you gotta love people. That's what gives life its meaning. And that does mean getting upset when something bad happens to your children or your relationship or whatever. Grief is often deeply appropriate, and it takes the measure of you as a loving person. Fear is sometimes inappropriate, but it's also sometimes very appropriate if something has threatened the things you love. So I wanted to make the case about anger as a particular problem. Now, in the fifth chapter, where I talk about the daily interactions with people who are not your intimate friends, and they're also not, it's not about politics, there I do follow Seneca much more down the road because I say that you know to get to get upset at all when some rude passenger on the airplane you know leans his elbow into you and um, which of course is very irritating and so on but I think there the right the right response really is stoic detachment thinking with Seneca, well, these things are not worth getting upset about. A, no occasion for fear or grief. Let's just get through this as best we can. And um, you know, I tell myself this a lot because that is where I have particular temptations to anger. And I think anyone who goes in for airline travel, uh, <laughs> my particular peak, as anyone who's read that chapter of the book knows, is that when you're traveling, I mean, I happen to be a workout addict and I do a lot of overhead press and, and all that. Uh, but nonetheless, some big out of shape guy is bound to think it's a great favor to me to seize my suitcase without asking my permission, right? If he had asked my permission, that would be fine. But just seize it and thrust it into the overhead compartment as though I'm a, a, a child or, you know, whether it's ageism or sexism, who knows, right? But it's, it, to me, it's insulting if the person asks permission, I just say, no, thank you. I need my overhead press workout today, you know. Uh, but, but so those things make me genuinely angry. And then, but then the thing is, why let your blood pressure go up because of this idiot who's doing that, right? <laughs> and, and so there, I think Seneca is right. And so, yeah, so I think that, but not about, not about personal intimate relationships and not about politics. Dr. Nussbaum, first of all, it's a privilege uh, to have you here with us to share all your work, so I thank you very much for that. My name is Jonathan. Um, my question is revolving around, you, you reference in several cases in the book um, other systems of virtue or morality, uh, namely the Judeo-Christian model. Um, could you just briefly summarize for us here today ways in which you found this concept of transition anger and forgiveness uh, to be in line with and in contradiction to or not parallel to the Judeo-Christian Judeo models of 
you shall forgive him seven times 77 or the Yom Kippur tradition of yeah. forgiveness. Thank you. Yeah, of course, we haven't, thank you. We haven't talked about forgiveness. And you might think um, at first blush that forgiveness is the antidote to anger. But what I was noticing is that in at least one very powerful strand of the Judeo-Christian tradition, where, of course, anger is modeled on a transaction between erring mortals and God, and is therefore strongly asymmetrical, uh, that, that there's something a little bit, uh, to me, unpleasant about the, the forgiveness ritual, because it's only on condition that this person abases him or herself and grovels and promises not to do it again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then they might possibly be forgiven. And I call that transactional forgiveness. And it's certainly very common in Jewish and Christian texts. I think there's a way in which it's a covert form of anger. And you know, you see it when these politicians' wives come on TV and, oh, he was bad, but he actually apologized and he promised that he would never do it again. And it, you know, somehow there's something undignified about asking a person whom you love to do go through that kind of ritual of abasement, I feel. So that was my view about transactional forgiveness. But then, in both Jewish and Christian texts, there's also unconditional forgiveness, where you say, I without any precondition, I waive my angry feelings. I think that's a lot better, but then of course we still have to ask, well, were you right to be angry in the first place? Because forgiveness is still defined as waiving or giving up the angry feelings. And there can still be a kind of note of smugness and self-satisfaction in that. So at one point in St. Paul, he says, give them unconditionally forgiveness, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on their head. So, you know, I think that's a familiar feeling, that people really forgive in order to feel superior and make the other person feel bad. So what I like best is just love, unconditional love and generosity. And as exemplified, I think, beautifully in the parable of the prodigal son, where the son's coming back, Father doesn't know why, doesn't know whether he's going to apologize, doesn't wait to see if he's going to apologize. He sees him, and he is seized by a very strong emotion. The Greek is esplanknizze, his guts were heaved up. And then he runs out to meet his son, and he hugs him. And then, of course, after that, he's going to give him some advice about how to live and, and so forth. But the love comes first. And I, I do feel that that's um, my favorite one. And I do feel that all three are in the Jewish tradition. For the Jewish tradition, I mean, of course, the texts are multiple. And the instantiation in ritual is multiple. And in the Christian tradition also, there's all kinds of multiplicity and diversity. So it's not a question of choosing a religion or a tradition, but, but finding the parts of one's own tradition. I happen to be a Reformed Jew. And so that's a convenient place to be, because I can decide uh, that anything that belongs in the text that is out of keeping with my view of moral obligation is historical, but not binding. And I do, you know. So, I mean, that, that to me is what it means to put the moral law first. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think Christians do this too. And I think obviously the, that the, the church in South Carolina, whoever that pastor was, and I hope that, that he or she was not alone, 
those people got a most marvelous ex education in, in love. And, and I, I do feel that that's a prominent part of lived Judaism and Christianity. Thank you. Thank you for giving this talk. Um, how would you defend your claim that this third form of anger isn't just a pragmatic sublimation of the uh, retributive anger? You mean the form that I call transition anger? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, it has a different content. It, I mean, sublimation is a tricky term, and I don't know what kind of psychoanalytic account you're thinking in terms of, but. I do feel that what it is is dropping the payback part and focusing on the, the protest and on changing the future. And that seems to me, you know, the idea of protest without payback, there's nothing incoherent about that. And I, I do feel possible that some people who take up that attitude harbor resentful feelings, but it would be surprising if Mandela never had a thought of retributivism in his horrible experience of 27 years in prison. But it's the moral project that matters, not the absolute seamlessness of its execution, I think. And I, I certainly don't believe that it's the case that it's only a screen for darker motives. I mean, if it were, I mean, are you, do you really mean to say that when parents punish their children in a spirit of producing future good, that's only a mere screen for a kind of hatred of the child and a desire to inflict pain? That would be a really harsh view of parenthood, and I think totally unconvincing to me. Thanks. Um, first of all, thank you for giving such a excuse me, uh, a thought-provoking uh, talk. Um, my question's uh, particularly focused on um, societies and democracies that are really focused around popular governance. Um, you, for, you yourself in this talk said that anger is a very popular emotion. And upon reflecting upon mm -hmm. the current political scheme, we can see how prevalent anger is in both um, the news media, politics, and seemingly everywhere else um, mm. in ever-increasing ways. Um, how does a popularly governed nation and a democracy um, de-escalate anger yeah. and, and ward off anger um, in yeah. somewhat the present? Because you had, you had answered a, a similar question that said uh, philosophy and, and better education. But right. how, how might we break the cycle with our in, within our own lifetimes? Well, I think it's got to come from many different directions. Because of course, you're quite right. In a democracy, it's got to come from everyone, it, 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 or at least a sufficient number of the people. And how is it going to get there when people are being bombarded by these hate-filled messages? And I do believe that the social media world that we're in makes this more difficult, because people can just have a conversation that's centered around dissing and hate and so on. And they don't even get exposure to more deliberative media sometimes. So it is harder, and I think that means there's more that has to be done by schools and parents 
and the system of liberal arts education. But I think, you know, there are things in every part of a person's life that can address this question. So I think, let, let, let's take a workplace. We all know workplaces that are filled with backbiting, snarkiness, dissing, and so on. But also, there are workplaces where there are such powerful norms of generosity and cooperation that they reproduce themselves. You defect a little bit, and people look at you. And I'm lucky enough, I must say, to be in such a, a culture at the University of Chicago in the law school and in the philosophy department where, you know, in a, if things start going out of line or somebody says something that's a little bit strong, um, then there's a group consciousness or a sensitivity that's been developed that makes people revert to the, the, the reciprocal and the, the helpful. And, and so I do feel like cultivating a workplace like that is a, one of the most important jobs of any kind of corporate leader, educational leader. I mean, these things do take leadership. And I think in our, our case, the dean has a lot of power to shape the, the culture of the place by simply talking to people privately if they are a little bit rude or insulting to somebody and, and so forth. And uh, so I think that's one very important thing, that workplaces would become places of non-anger. And it's so much more productive. If you waste all your time being angry at people, it just eats into you and you become much less productive. I also think outside of the, the role for literature and the arts in education, their role in the larger culture is huge. If we think about how people have their attitudes shaped toward groups of people that they don't know very well or whom they may view with some negativity, the, the, the arts play a huge role. I think that in winning respect and equality for gays and lesbians in our society, Will and grace was the one most powerful thing because somehow with great brilliance and, and wonderful acting and so on, they put forward to people who didn't know whether they knew any gays or lesbians and whose children didn't come out yet and so on. Lesbian and gay lives that were appealing, funny, but also different one from another so you didn't think that it was all a cookie cutter. And I mean, so just something like that is something that is of such enormous importance. I think that Hollywood, uh, more generally, has a lot more work to do, you know? Uh, just uh, reading an interview with Alan Arkin about his new, the new movie, Going in Style, which is about uh, aging, and he says, you know, Hollywood still pushes aging people off the cliff, and they, they do. And the new book that I've just finished writing is called Aging Thoughtfully, and I, my co-author and I do talk about the marginalization of aging people in the media and in Hollywood, so that struck a chord with me. But anyway, so there are lots of ways in which the arts are not perfect and they need to do much more to address problems of marginalization and denigration in our society. But anyway, that's one place that one can go to work. Now, do we need charismatic, world famous leaders. I picked examples where we had them, Gandhi, King, and Mandela. But you know, I think that, that that's very helpful to have somebody that 
charismatic if you want to bring large numbers of people together around an important cause. But I think if you don't have that, number one, you have the example of that. I think a lot of African Americans in this country are operating under the aegis of King, although King is no longer with them. And uh, I, I do think that in general, at a local level, there are people who can exercise leadership at a local level who wouldn't be able to do on the national level what Gandhi did. So I think that the answer is just we have to look for hope and non-anger in all the places that we can. And, and uh, I have a student who was just elected to Congress in California, first term congressman, and he gave a speech when he won about reconciliation that was a very beautiful speech. He's in a very divided congressional district. So, you know, here's one person, and we just have to have many, many different sources of light, so to speak. Hello, I'm Michaeline Kelly, and I'm grateful that your book was available for inclusion in my philosophy of law class at Aquinas. We mm. discussed this chapter yesterday. Uh -huh. So I think I represent our collective response uh, to your recommendations in this question. How do you conceptualize the different roles that the injured person, the victim, and the wrongdoer have in this movement forward to a, a, a better social environment in which uh, the possibilities of that crime reoccurring are diminished. So I see you suggesting an Aristotelian mandate to the victim to develop this gentle temper. I see Mandela, your reason mm. for including Mandela. And I'm wondering if the common mutual uh, task is understanding, and if so, on the part of the victim and the uh, 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 perpetrator. If so, are you recommending uh, something like a face-to-face -face encounter? Uh, is that why you uh, mentioned Mandela with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the types of mediation that occurs subsequent to the occurrence of a crime? Okay, great. Um, I think that it, in political life, as in a different way in intimate personal relationships, trust is something that is absolutely crucial. And that trust is not simply reliance, because we can rely on people to act badly in lots of situations. But trust means we're willing to be vulnerable to those people, to let our good depend on their good. And that's difficult to cultivate. And so then the question is, in the political life, how can we do that? Now, I think there are certainly two things that may not be a total list. But one thing is accountability. The society has to state, these are our values, and people who do not uphold those values, we have to make that clear that the values were violated. And so, closely connected with that, the second thing is truth. We gotta figure out what happened. And uh, so, that those two things I think are pretty well non-negotiable. Everything else I think is contextual. So for example, do we need a face-to-face meeting, well, I think that depends on the nature of the society, the nature of what will produce trust in that society, and any abstract prescription is probably going to be too dictatorial. Do we want trials? Well, in the case of South Africa, they reasoned, I think, convincingly that trials would probably not be a good idea because the people who were accused had access to very high-powered lawyers, 
and therefore if there were trials, there would be no truth. And so they decided that for them, not necessarily for everyone, but, but for them, the best way was to have truth and the kind of accountability produced by truth, publicity, and statement that this goes against our values, which of course was then accompanied by forming a new constitution which, where those values were stated. Uh, in Northern Ireland, they moved too quickly, I think, in terms of trying to extend the hand of friendship without getting truth. So they allowed all these crucial documents to be sealed in this locked archive at Boston College, which will not be opened until everyone involved is dead. And so that means that we don't know whether Jerry Adams kidnapped Gene McConville or not. And that's really bad. I mean, so somehow Martin McGinnis, who just died, he, his bad acts were known. People could make their peace with Martin McGinnis. Prince Philip didn't want to shake his hand, but actually the queen did shake his hand. Jerry Adams, I think people are really torn up inside because they, it's not that they couldn't make their peace with him if he had done that, but not knowing what he did is driving people crazy. So those are the two things that I think you really have to have. But beyond that, you know, it depends what kind of nation it is. Now, in the case of India, we, they needed um, a very, a, a threefold partnership. So Gandhi to be the expression of the ideals, Nehru to offer sage political guidance, bringing, bringing a nation together where people are speaking two, 22 official languages, 350 that are really spoken. Uh, so you need somebody who's a genius politician, and then you need law, because they didn't have, I mean, they had shreds of the British legal system, but they have to have their own legal system. So then they did have one of the greatest legal minds in all of, I think, history, B.R. Ambedkar, who was the chief architect of the Indian Constitution. And so it was that teamwork that made the nation go forward, and Ambedkar, I think was particularly important, was that he was focused not just on the struggle against the British, but on the caste hierarchy, because he was a, a Dalit, and he had endured the indignity of going to school and not being allowed to drink water with the other boys when it was 110 degrees in the noontime. So he really wanted the kind of legal order which he, he had studied uh, in the US. He was a protege of John Dewey. And he thought that the US style constitution with its supra-majoritarian protection for fundamental rights against majority tyranny was what India had to have, and so he did that. Now, of course, there are you know, many problems between something being on paper and it's being real in people's lives, and I'm not saying it's totally a success in terms of implementation, but I think having that teamwork where you had the, the person who sees the, the ideals, the person who knows how to negotiate politically, and then the person who sees what it would be to turn that into a working legal system. I mean, Athena does all three, right? But you can't really have that in a modern nation. So I think the separation of powers is, is very, very important. Hello, and thank you for your excellent talk. Now, my question is, on the personal level, if an aggressor has acknowledged their moral failings, how they, the aggressor, can go about to rectify 
their actions, which they acknowledge are wrong? Uh, well, you know, I think there are just many, many ways they, they can do it. It depends what kind of wrong it is. Now, of course, in just intimate personal relationships, there are so many ways that people can acknowledge that what they've done is wrong, and then sometimes it'll be possible to move forward and reweave that relationship. Sometimes it might not. You might just find out that, well, now our paths should, still they'll part on a note of understanding and friendship, which I think is very, very important. And uh, I mean, I'm often regarded as very weird for the fact that not only my ex-husband, but other exes are my best friends. But I think those are really quite, it's important to achieve some sort of ongoing relationship that's productive and not just, um, I mean, whether it involves acknowledgement or not, that's another question. Maybe, maybe you do it better by not forcing. See, that's what I'm saying about forgiveness. When you put somebody in the position, get down on your knees and acknowledge, that's probably gonna be counterproductive in many situations. So you might just take it for granted or allow some gesture to count, not, not force a person to be too explicit about what they're acknowledging. But then, all right, let's turn to politics. What about that? Now, I think there, people, I don't know, are you thinking more about criminals or are you thinking more about political oppression? Political oppression. Okay, so in the case of the, let's say in the case of South Africa, I think what Mandela understood was that people, if they were put in this box, you say I'm a bad person, then they respond like the traveler with the blanket when the wind starts blowing. And so he was very good at not demanding an apology. Of course, they had to come before the commission and say what they did. So that was, they had to make a true statement. But he didn't really feel that, he felt it was better to presume that the doer and the deed were separate, that they're, yeah, they did some bad things, but this is a person who is capable of good if you treat the person as if they're capable of good. At Mandela's funeral, I saw on TV some middle-aged policemen who were talking about Mandela's inauguration, and one of them remembered how when the inaugural parade passed by these young police recruits, Mandela got out of his car and he came over, and of course they were all white, these white police recruits, he shook their hands and said, our trust resides in you. Now, of course, that's proleptic. It's not retrospective. Their, <laughs> their trust of a, an Af black African did not re reside in those policemen. But they were so deeply moved. And this man recounting it at the funeral, his tears were rolling down his face. And just to be regarded as capable of trust was so powerfully moving to him. It was much, much better. I mean, just another world from saying, now you apologize for what you've done. So I think you just have to figure out what, what is the way going forward. And apologies may often be useful as signals that the person really understands what has happened. But to force an apology may, may often just be the wrong thing. Thank you. I have been given the privilege 
of asking you the final question. Oh. <laughs> and I suspect it's because of my age. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could study with you in a seminar. I find you fascinating in your ideas. I especially love the idea of transformational anger. I would ask you to think again about how it is that so many males seem to have so much more anger than females because it seems to imply <laughs> that if it's male, it's bad. Uh, no, I, no, I, no, 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 I'm not done. I'm okay. not done. Okay. <laughs> but I, I've spent many years before I retired in, from ministry and anti-racism work. And I do think that at least for me, tonight's talk got to be really nice way too fast. And that when we want to use words like Western civilization and Judeo-Christian faith and, and those kind of flowery phrases, and if we want to distinguish, why would we distinguish between crime and oppression? I, I don't get that. I think it's significant, and I'd like to hear you com comment on this, that none of the three men who you chose to single out as leaders were white and probably couldn't have been. Thank oh, you. Okay, well, actually, I do, uh, there are many things in your question. The first thing, let me talk about male and female. The, now, the fact is that there are many societies in which anger is associated predominantly with women, and women are regarded as incapable of controlling their anger, and therefore they're given a free pass on their anger. That was true in both Greece and Rome. So uh, whereas men, of course, they have a lot of anger, but they're not expected to indulge it. So when Cicero writes to his brother Quintus, who's over there in Syria, he says, Quintus, I hear a lot of good things about you, but one thing is disturbing to me, that you get angry a lot, and you should learn to control that. Now, that was the Roman attitude. It's a problem. Control it, and it's childish, and it's womanish. Whereas in America, empirical research shows very convincingly that from the time the baby is really small, I mean, like, there's experiments with small infants where they label them now male and now female, and then they ask people to describe their emotions. People impute with pleasure anger to the boy baby. So if they think it's a boy, and the boy is crying, they say, oh, he's really mad. He wants to get what he wants. And they think this is a very positive thing. And then all the way along the line, little boys are encouraged to act out in terms of their anger, whereas little girls are not. Now, so I'm criticizing that model of cultural bifurcated moral development. It's not universal, thank goodness. But it is uh, very common, and it has been experimentally demonstrated. So it's, uh, OK, so that's that. Now, what about the fact that the leaders were, I don't know what it even means to be white. I mean, Gandhi was, according to the race science of Germany, he was an Aryan, you know. Um, that's what it means to be an Aryan, to be from the Sanskritic descended languages. So I don't know, the color of his skin it doesn't, I, mean, I think the whole thing is bogus anyway. But uh, certainly, in terms of Hitlerian race science, Gandhi was white. So um, why do I pick people who are leading struggles against great oppression 
Well, simply because those are three of the biggest freedom movements that we know. And uh, it, it's not too surprising that those were people in countries that had been oppressed by Europeans. Now, they're all non-European, that I will grant to you, um, because Europeans did actually do most of the colonizing and most of the dominating for many thousands of years in this world. But if we had talked about the American Revolution, and I have written about Hamilton, and I alluded to, I, I published a piece in the Boston Review about Hamilton, well then, of course, um, it's, uh, it's not the same story. It's a story of oppression, but the protagonists are Euro-Americans, and, uh, and there's, I don't think that the topic is all that different. I said in my Boston Review piece that I actually do think that the struggle that's depicted in Hamilton is of, of tremendous interest for how we think about envy in politics and anger in politics. So I'm happy to talk about that case too. If you prefer to talk about white people, I'm happy to talk about Burr. I'm sorry, but I think that was a deflection of the question. Well, no, so you asked why I didn't talk about people. I said I did. I actually have in other publications. So if you want, and actually if you read the whole book, <laughs> you'll see that most of the people who provoke me to anger are people who fly uh, on uh, United Airlines, and a large proportion of those are white, actually. And um, so I don't know. If you, if you are saying to me that my heroes are all non-white, well, I first point out that race science is bogus, and that according to even the bogus race science, Gandhi is white. But I, second, I was saying the opposite. I was saying I think it's significant that they are because I believe they had to be. And I would like to had hear to be some for more what purpose? I would like to hear more critique about societies on the bigger level, instead of going down to, to crime and criminals and things like that. Well, you how asked about, why I talk about oppression about, and racism. How about look? I have two inequality. separate chapters in the book. If you look at it, you'll see that I have one called Everyday Justice, and I say in a society that has a reasonably sound political structure but has to deal with crime on the individual level, what approach should we take? And then I get to the last chapter, which is the one that this is based on, which is what if we need to transform the whole society? What should we do? Now, of course, I don't think it's all about having a non-angry leader. That's why I answered the last uh, person by saying we need good politics, we need good law, and you know those things, I can't write about everything in the same book, but I've written a whole lot about Nehru and Ambedkar. I wrote a whole, whole book about in the founding of the Indian democracy. Uh, I do feel that all of those things are important. And even in the anger book, I, I felt I had to point out that Mandela made some great errors in that department because he chose bad people to run the education system and to run the economy. And I think that his lack of political judgment uh, was, is part of the explanation for the sad state of South Africa uh, today. And I think that in both India and South Africa, both, they made a similar error, which is that when there's a freedom movement, it cannot continue to think that it is the only political party. The Congress in India, the ANC in South Africa, being the freedom movement, everyone loves them, they think, okay, we don't need multi-party democracy, we're gonna be the only party. And that's a huge mistake that has come home to roost in both cases because the 
so-called movement slash party becomes internally corrupt, it loses support, and then some other much less uh, savory movements on the fringe start to take, take up. But in any case, so I'm not uncritical, and I'm not inattentive to the other things you have to do to build a nation. But I'm just focusing on one aspect for the purposes of this particular one-hour lecture. That was Martha Nussbaum, the Ernst Freud Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowensteinCenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.